I've listened to the pod, um, understand that it's a little bit more, uh, you know, tech and quants and watts and all that stuff that a lot of us in the cycling community and endurance sport community really focus on. But um, there is a bigger conversation at large to have right now about uh, the way society is changing and coping with, uh, you know, certainly the pandemic and looking ahead to the future uh, and the type of cities that uh, that we're building and the type type of places that we want to live in. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, Today, we have a little bit of a departure for all you listeners uh, from the steady stream of cycling and running and endurance uh, heavy nerddom that uh, you're used to hearing from us here at EI. Today, I welcome to the show Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford. Uh, Brad's here to talk about a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, and that is the growth of cycling infrastructure in the city and uh, his thoughts on the continuation of that growth. Brad, thank you very much for your time and uh, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Michael. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, me too. Me too, as I said in the intro. So uh, why don't we start with a little bit of a, of a history, uh, specifically kind of what's your experience, exposure to cycling? Um, yeah, that's a good spot. Uh, very good. So, you know, I actually started uh, riding bikes in the city when I first finished grad school. I went to school for urban planning, uh, got a job at mm-hmm. a consulting firm, moved to Young and St. Clair here in Toronto, and I was paying, I don't know, 140 bucks a month for a TTC pass, and I would find that I, I actually couldn't get on the subway. I'd have to wait for two or three trains at that point uh, to board, and it was just a short uh, couple kilometer commute. So I ended up picking up, uh, you know, it was like a Trek 1200 old aluminum bike for 300 bucks in Brantford. Uh, seems like a pretty good nice. deal today. And these days that would be a steal. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that's, uh, that's how I started riding bikes in the city. Uh, it was just a product of, um, this is a better way to commute. And, you know, at the time I was like, well, it's all downhill to, to young and bluer. So wasn't worried about getting sweaty and, you know, very quickly you learn that experiencing the city by bicycle, uh, is something very different. It's a great way to clear your head and your mind space going into the office and, and can be quite enjoyable, but it wasn't a, uh, you know, a, a, a crusade of passion at that time. It was just the practicality of there's got to be a better way to get around Toronto. And, and the bicycle was that option for me. Awesome. And then did you, uh, did you take it further? Did you ever, you know, ride with a group? Uh, did you do any racing? Yeah. So I, I moved down to Boston, Massachusetts. I was down there uh, working at a nonprofit doing renewable energy work. And oh. when I moved down there, I didn't know anybody uh, in, in the U.S. really at all. Um, I had bought a road bike and, um, and it seemed like kind of a good way to, to do some fitness. I had blown out my knees. I've had four ACL surgeries. I I played rugby Mm. in school and, uh, that took a toll. So one of the surgeons said, you know, you really need to get into something that's more low impact. 
uh, and had suggested cycling probably because he was, he was a endurance athlete himself. And so when I got down to Boston, was proselytizing was it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and I and I get down there and I go to the the local bike shop and say, hey, you know, looking to meet some folks to ride with. And they set me up with this club, uh, Minuteman Road Club, just outside of Boston. And uh, I thought I was pretty fit at the time. Uh, you know, I was doing CrossFit and you know, just a different sort of physique. And these guys took me out and I was promptly dispatched out the back of this group. Uh, and it was, it was like a master's group too. So I was maybe 28 at the time or something. I'm 34 now, but I was, uh, I was spit out the back. They dropped me like a ton of bricks. Uh, but the guys were really good about it. And, you know, I remember this guy would drop back and ride me back onto the group. And, and so I started riding with them and, you know, fell in love with it. Competitive spirit wanted to, uh, to get better, started training a little bit. And they took me out to like every sort of community, the, the local crit in the office park in Boston, it's called the, the Wells Ave crit. And I signed up for like the, the D race and, you know, 25 minutes. And it was just like the most intense, uh, experience of my life, you know, the, the side to side jostling, uh, the, the contact, uh, everybody just fighting for position and very, very overwhelming. And I hadn't had that sort of like mental stimulation in a long time. And I just got hooked on it. Uh, I was down in Boston for, for a few years and the beauty about new England, you got five States within a 90 minute drive. So the racing calendar is just, you can race everywhere, Hmm. uh, every weekend. And, you know, in the U S system of categories, you can race twice a day, crits suit my build and, and sort of my strengths well. So you could, you know, be a cat four and do the five, four race. And then you could do the three, four race, or when you're a cat three, you can do the four, three, and then the one, two, three. So my first, my first sort of real season of racing, I think I got like 55 race days in and was able to kind of just move through the categories. Uh, I ended up coming back to, uh, to Toronto and, meeting some fantastic folks in the cycling community here. Uh, but there wasn't really a team that was, um, that was focused on sort of developing talent and taking folks to the bigger races down in the U S. So we started, uh, Toronto hustle, uh, big focus yep. on cycling advocacy, big focus on getting more people on bikes. And of course, as you know, sort of an amateur elite team, getting folks to those big UCI races in, in the U S and, uh, we're, we're headed into our fifth season now. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I love the fact that it kind of, it marries the, you know, the, the desire to race with also the, you know, the, the advocacy and also the kind of the, the drive to bring up, bring up young talent. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important. And again, what I saw in, in the U S context was just a, a much more mature, um, system of racing, a much more robust calendar, far fewer barriers to entry. You know, the fact that anyone can sign up and do a cat five race and you can get a one day license for 10 bucks. Like that's what it's got to be about. And we wonder why the sport, you know, on the sporting side is, is largely anemic and, and we continue to see races fold. We continue to see teams disappear. Well, you know, the, the OCA, uh, here in Ontario, uh, has a lot of work to do in cultivating cultivating the the sport, bringing new people into it. We're very focused on certain dimensions of cycling, uh, and it comes at the expense of of huge swaths of of people and community. 
And so you look at the institutions, you lose faith in that, you, you see other places doing it better. And, you know, just like politics, it kind of gets to that point where you say, you know what, I'm going to shut up, stop complaining about it and, and uh, put my hand up and try and make it better. And that's what we're doing with Toronto mm-hmm. Hustle. And, uh, you know, I think that there, you're seeing the community start to respond and, and a shift towards, you can't just be a race team. Like nobody gives a shit about that. Um, you got to yeah. use your plastic. Unless you're, you're on the world tour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, the focus on Conti racing, continental racing, uh, the only people that care about that are folks who are doing continental racing. Like, you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody that, that I ride with could, could probably name the handful of Conti teams that still exist in North America, uh, other than, you know, the, the men and women that are riding on those teams. So it's, it's using the platform for, for good. It's trying to create positive change and think beyond the traditional notion of a bike race team that, you know, goes to the races and, you know, takes a, takes a shot on the podium in, in an office park. Like it, there's so mm-hmm. much more to this sport and this community than just the elite racing side. And the sooner that we all sort of recognize that, uh, I think it'll be really positive for the sport. I agree. And I think this is, as you kind of hinted at earlier, this is a very timely, um, well, <laughs> timely time. This is the, the appropriate time to be having this conversation, I think. Yeah, 2020, the year that nobody wanted. I mean, we are simultaneously dealing with a global pandemic, a global recession, and a global human rights movement. Mm-hmm. And so the intensity uh, on all of us to try and respond to these challenges, whether you're, you know, uh, a in the cycling community or you work in government or just your day-to-day lives and at home with the family, the, the challenges that we're all uh, facing right now, the disproportionate impacts of these challenges and how they're felt in different communities. Uh, it's the word of course is unprecedented, but it, it really, really is. And so you've seen governments try and move at, um, you know, speeds that we've never seen before. It really has been akin to a wartime effort. Uh, you've seen private sector and philanthropic involvement, um, trying to create positive change. And then at a local level, we're having grassroots movements, um, fuel discussions about, uh, you know, racial equity, fueling discussions around a greener recovery and, and being a part of a change, in a culture around active transportation and how we move through our neighborhoods. All of that stuff is happening. So it's been a really challenging year, but there is certainly a silver lining in all of this crisis. And and the idea that we're going back to normal, you know, we all have to scratch our heads and say, like, is normal really what we want? Was normal so great? Yep. Uh, it's yep. an opportunity to look ahead to the future and build the type of city and the type of communities that we actually all want to be a part of. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. But uh, what I want to do is rewind a little bit. And uh, you were elected uh, before all of this nonsense took place. So, you know, you you come up as a city planner, which maybe is a natural fit. You do a little bit of work south of the border in uh, renewables. Um, how do you how and why do you want to become a, uh, a city councillor? For me, it was uh, I was working at City Hall. I was in the chief planner's office, and uh, you know the the staff and the civil servants of Toronto uh, do a lot of fantastic work. They really are dedicated folks, um, focused on on building a better city. But there is um, the inevitability of uh, sometimes good policy is is frustrated by bad politics. Um, sometimes. Uh, you know, you need to be in a position to 
not just take direction, uh, which is often what, what staff have to do, but be in a position where, you know, you're helping to inform the direction. And I was involved in an organization called Civic Action, one of their diversity fellows, uh, 2017, 2018. And I would show up at these meetings. Basically, it's it's 25 young leaders from across the greater Toronto uh, and Hamilton area. Okay. And, and they're all doing really, really amazing things, whether that's, you know, working um, with at-risk youth in neighborhood improvement areas or starting uh, a food bank or helping new Canadians access resources. These 25 young leaders uh, really are changing the world that we live in. And I was kind of showing up each month, sitting there and just sort of, you know, uh, white male with a graduate degree embedded in bureaucracy Mm. at the city of Toronto. And, and, more frustrated and more complaining than actually being a part of positive change. So month after month, you have that reflection, you look around and you sort of say, maybe, uh, maybe I ought to be doing more, maybe I ought to be doing it differently. And certainly municipal politics, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where you can actually make a big tangible impact in the community that you care about. And certainly we all make an impact in different ways. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways that we can create change, um, but for me, uh, put my hand up to do the municipal politics seemed like the uh, the right next step, and I've been at it for two years now, and it's uh, it's a lot more than I ever could have anticipated. <laughs> well, one thing that I, I kind of want to highlight what you said, and this again has nothing to do with cycling, but since we're talking politics, I uh, I think there's a well, I'm fairly confident in saying this. There's uh, a large disconnect between the politics that that folks follow um, and the politics that directly affects their their everyday experience. And I think there's a lot of you know there, people pay a lot of attention to um, federal and provincial politics, which of course are very important. But their their day to day lives are impacted by the decisions that folks like you make. Uh, I would argue considerably more. So it's uh, a bit of a call, you know, if I if I can make a call to action for people to to pay attention more to to civic politics and become engaged. Cause I think that's where, yeah, as you said, the rubber does meet the road. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and honestly, Arctic sovereignty is a very, you know, esoteric and fascinating discussion, uh, <laughs> but like quite removed from our day-to-day lives. But, you know, people care about transit. People care about affordable housing. Uh, people care about, you know, congestion and cars. They care about road safety. Um, they care about access to opportunity. Uh, and they also care about, you know, their, their garbage getting picked up each week. So, you know, from the big issues to the small issues, from the, the city building uh, entirety of the city of 3 million people to the really local stuff. A, a community garden at the end of, uh, of a cul-de-sac, like all these things impact people's day-to-day lives. And when you're able to take your lead from the community and the residents around you, they know what they want to see in their neighborhood. So you just need to be engaged and take that feedback and then relentlessly work towards uh, to, to implementing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brad, let's zoom in on one of those areas, um, sustainable transportation. So uh, obviously there was a, well, I'll let you talk about it, but I imagine there was a little bit of a shift from the city's plan pre-COVID and then during COVID 
uh, as far as um, cycling infrastructure and sustainable transportation. So can you give us a kind of a high level view of what you guys were thinking of doing and then what you had to pivot and ended up doing? Yeah, it's it's been an accelerant. Uh, we have poured fuel on the fire and certainly I've been happy to see that, uh, you know, the cycling community, uh, Cycle Toronto, road advocacy folks are, are very excited about that. Um, Toronto, I think is, you know, often criticized and in some cases fairly um, because we're too incremental uh, because, you know, you never want to be the first through the wall because you get a little bit bloody. Mm -hmm. We always want to point to other cities and other jurisdictions and the rate of progress in the city when it comes to some of these things is, is not as fast as we would like to see it. So we have a 10 year cycling plan, um, you know, that without getting into too much of the details have been, paired back into a three-year implementation plan uh, tied with our capital investments uh, in terms of infrastructure projects. And all of that really kind of uh, froze as this pandemic erupted in early March. Right. And we recognized that the way people were going to be moving was going to shift. You weren't going downtown, uh, commuting to the office every day. In fact, our our lives had changed dramatically. Everything was work from home. Mm -hmm. So from a mobility perspective, from a transportation perspective, what does that mean? Well, it means that transit is down 80%. And on a system as large as the TTC, that meant we were hemorrhaging about 25 million bucks a week. Wow. Uh, it, it meant that you know, single occupancy vehicle volumes were down considerably. Folks were staying home. And it meant that, you know, the trips in the neighborhood were way up. People were really um, the going to the butcher shop, going to the grocery store, going to the pharmacy. Uh, they were hyper local trips. So the question for policymakers is how do we facilitate not a, you know, eastbound, westbound rush hour commute, but how do we, how do we facilitate uh, hyper local trips in our neighborhoods that are really there's no real peak to it. It's kind of all day continuous travel. Sure. And there was also the very real need of you know both for physical and mental health. Uh, folks were locked up, but we needed them to get outside and stretch their legs. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of the genesis of the whole you know accelerant of our of our bike plan, along with a lot of other new road safety initiatives that you know we largely put under the banner of active TO because anything that we do in Toronto has to have the TO moniker on the end of it. So so it was active TO. <laughs> Good branding. Yeah, yeah, keep it consistent. Um, it, so it was active TO. And, and for us, that was the rollout and acceleration of 45 kilometers of uh, cycling infrastructure, uh, bike lanes, multi-use paths uh, in the city of Toronto. And to give you some context, like, you know, Last year, I think we did about six kilometers of uh, mm -hmm. separated cycling infrastructure. So orders of magnitude more. Now, you can point to other jurisdictions as folks on Twitter do and say, oh, shit, but Montreal is doing, you know, yeah, like other cities and the context in those cities and just the urban form and the right of way and the geography of those cities. Very, very different. Sure. It was a big, bold move in the Toronto context. Uh, you know, something I think that as a cycling community, we can be very proud of because, you know, it's, it's certainly historic investment in moves that we've never seen before, but it also shows us what we're capable of. It also shows us, um, you know, the way forward and, and we need to double down on this success, not rest on our laurels, but actually do more of this going forward. 
Yeah, I was blown away how quickly it happened. I mean, I uh, I'm in your in your ward, uh, Brad, and uh, just north of the Danforth, and the those Danforth lanes came in quick. I was never, you know, the city. I think sometimes rightly and sometimes you know not rightly takes flack for how slowly things happen, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, and these went in quickly. That was uh, that was some real fire there. It, it was it was work that was underway. Okay. Um, in that. We're doing the Danforth planning study, and again, not to to bore the listeners with too much details, but this this was contemplated. This, you know, we had had two public meetings on this uh, in all my time in city planning, and then now as you know, an elected official, I've never seen a public meeting with so much turnout. We were at the local high school, the bottom of the cafeteria, and we had to open up the library for a over huh. overfill. Now this was back pre-pandemic. There was more than 500 people that came out to that public meeting. Uh, and you know, you want to feel, feel the heat as a politician, uh, pack hundreds of people into a room and talk <laughs> about something like the third rail of politics, like, uh, like parking and bike lanes. So, yep. <laughs> you know, but so this was There's some strong, strong feelings there. I'm sure. In yeah, that in bike lanes, active transportation, you know, there, there are a lot of people on both sides of that discussion. And I think like I talk about this in the cycling advocacy community because you can make, um, you know, like we've done historic investments in cycling uh, infrastructure. And, you know, in terms of uh, being a politician, if, if the name of the game for a lot of politicians is how do I get reelected? Okay, well, is this a winning issue? Yeah. Well, the cycling community often not all of the cycling community but some folks will you know shit all over you and say well this isn't enough and there's not enough separation and why does it stop here and why does it take so long so you take a bunch of heat from the cycling advocacy community and then like everybody (laughs) else is pissed off that you're taking away lanes of traffic or you're taking away parking so it's sort of i i obviously like ran on bike lanes and believe in cycling infrastructure and that's what i'm here to do but if you are, you know, a politician who's more lukewarm on it or unsure, it's like pick a different issue, pick local manufacturing, pick affordable housing, pick transit, because, mm-hmm. you know, the cycling community, we need to make sure that this is an issue that politicians get comfortable with uh, and that they can see the success and the benefit of doing this and that the community wants it and that we support them um, when they're creating this kind of change. Because, you know, again, I've I believe in it and I'm doing it regardless because I think it's the right thing to do. Okay. But a lot of folks are, are, you know, a little bit more uneasy or unsure. And certainly as an advocacy community, you know, we need to build bridges, uh, not tear them down. And you get the dopamine hit from that hot take on Twitter uh, and it feels good and somebody retweets it. But you actually really damage the relationships and it makes it harder to get stuff done in the future. Yeah, I think I think that's totally right. And that that brings up a question for me is that if you have politicians who are lukewarm on it and obviously um well, really this is a two-parter. Um if you're looking for kind of big picture infrastructure, so moving beyond, you know, with with hopefully this pandemic wraps up in the somewhat foreseeable future with the the, the development of the vaccines, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um and your hyperlocal um transit demands or or commute demands become go to some form of you know what what they used to be of people actually commuting to to work sites and and the offices then that infrastructure obviously has to expand so if you've got 
folks in politics who are lukewarm on it and are not interested in, in you know, taking up the fight, then how do you create a contiguous system of, uh, of cycling transportation if you've got, a, you know, some some wards where it's a big, important issue and then some wards where it's, uh, you know, maybe not as much? I think that, like, all of these conversations have to start from a place of values and empathy. So from a value perspective, like road safety, that's probably the number one thing I hear about. You know, I jokingly call our community the family belt here in Beaches East York because we've got so many young families <laughs> and we've got seniors <laughs> and road safety is a top priority. We've done more on the road safety file in terms of, you know, speed humps and stop signs and protected intersections than than anyone else on council. It's it's something I'm completely seized with. But generally everybody agrees that we don't want speeding on our streets. We don't want folks running stoplights and stop signs. Uh, and, yeah. and we want traffic calming measures. So cycling infrastructure, and I usually talk about complete streets being, you know, the idea that our streets are safe for all road users. Um, we have to move away from that 1970s engineering paradigm of how do I move as many single occupancy vehicles as quickly as possible? That's actually not desirable anymore. We want streets that are safe for people, whether you are walking or rolling or taking transit or driving, like it needs to work for everyone. So that's where my head's at on that. But when you start from a place of shared values and say, okay, like road safety for your aging parents or your young kids, like that is something that we are all invested and committed to. What does that actually look like? What does a safe street in a 21st century Toronto context look like? And I can tell you, it doesn't look the same as the Danforth used to, uh, or the Allen, or you know, parts of North Northern Young. Like it looks mm-hmm. different, and so we need to come together and address the issues. There's lots of legitimate issues, you know, issues around accessibility, issues around um, you know, loading, how how folks go, get in and out of properties. Um, all of that stuff needs to be addressed. But if we start from a place of shared values of what's important and what we want to do, we can work together to deliver, you know, infrastructure for our city that prioritizes our shared values. And then the other piece, that empathy piece, it's, you know, there are folks that you're not going to be able to move on this. Yeah. Uh, I, I often joke, I've never won an argument by telling someone how stupid they are. Um, but you need to understand, you need to listen. We may not agree. And I've also learned that perception is reality for people. So when they tell me that, you know, they've been, they, they were in traffic on, on Woodbine for 30 minutes, you know, I, I know we have the data that shows, you know, the, the PM peak impact is not a 30 minute impact, of course, but perception is reality. It's how people feel. That's what's important. And, uh, just an understanding that, look, they're, they're trying to get home to their family. You know, they're trying to get across town or run their errands. They're frustrated. There's a lot going on. And so just having that empathy and understanding, even if we may not agree on the position, I think it leads to a lot more helpful and productive conversations. I agree. An argument that I hear often is that uh, cycling infrastructure is only ever used in in warm weather months. Um, and so, what do you what do you say to that? And I know I'm a, I'm a I'm someone who is who's riding year round. Um, now I'm a little bit more in my basement, but as far as cycle cycle commuting, I still uh, I'll, I'll do it through the winter, provided it's not very slippery. 
but um, there's obviously a bit of a, a dip in the utilization of the of the bike lanes in the winter. What do you say to the critics of that? Well, it's it's exact. You're exactly right. I primarily am, am training on Swift, uh, but I'm a year round commuter, and so I put on the you know the splash pants and yep. <laughs> you know the the vest and the high vis and studded tires and fenders and i ride a cross bike into work uh during the winter if i could get bike share extended for 45 minutes uh which i'm working on uh then i'll just you know bang on a bike share bike all winter and beat that up mm-hmm. instead of rusting out my drivetrain but yeah right <laughs> in any case um you know it's obviously not as many people are riding bikes in the winter. And when we build the infrastructure, we have to take care of it. That means plowing the bike lanes and making sure that they are safe for people to use. However, I think this summer has been a really good example of a prolific increase in folks making use of active transportation. People have been going into the shed and pulling out that, you know, 10 or 20 year old bike with the flat tire and the rusted chain, taking it in, getting it serviced, and they are rediscovering a bicycle in the way that they haven't since their childhood. And they're finding that it's practical, it is fun, it is environmentally sustainable, and it is easy to get around the neighborhood using that. So, you know, it, it is the adage of build it and they will come like that actually happened this summer when we closed down lakeshore um to do active to and gave that space you know took that space from cars and gave it back to people we had tens of thousands 20,000 30,000 people making use of that corridor every weekend all summer long so yeah, it was glorious it, it was spectacular and that's the kind of big city moves that we need to see here in in a place like toronto we need to do more of that but the the point i'm trying to make is when we make it safer for people when we make it more comfortable for people they will you know it's it's human behavior then it becomes a more mm-hmm. viable option i always rode on danforth you know and you always rode on danforth yeah, me too. and it was a four yeah. lane arterial road it was actually quite wide in places which meant people moved around a lot the the movement was less predictable but like it is alpha females and alpha males that are comfortable riding a mixed traffic <laughs> like that and we need to create yeah. something that is safe for for everybody and now that we've done that on danforth i see kids with training wheels riding in that bike lane. And I see seniors <laughs> yeah. on cruisers and everybody in between. And that is that sort of pinch me moment of like, man, like we actually did this and it has transformed the East end of the city, you know, forever. Like we're going to make this permanent and this will be a lasting uh, piece of infrastructure that will change the way we move in Toronto. So, you know, winter cycling will be a part of our mode share. It will be an increasing part of our mode share. I mean, what are we, it's uh, November 20th today and it's like double digit temperatures outside. So yeah. <laughs> uh, not that that is the norm, but it certainly is possible. The, the folks that say, look, you know, Torontonians only cycle six months of the year. That is just not true. Um, if anything, it's probably like, you know, I will concede maybe there's two months of the year where it's pretty gnarly and only the most hardcore people are going out. But that's like, a, yep. you know, that's a January, February sort of thing. On the shoulder seasons, you just got to dress for it. And again, when we build the infrastructure to make it safe, it becomes an option for more and more people. I totally agree. I mean, if you look at Northern Europe, right, like they will do it year round. They'll do it in snow and, and 
really terrible conditions. So it's not it's not impossible. It's not like that there is there is some kind of technological barrier to to this happening. It's just culturally we're not there yet. And I agree with you that you know by I hate to use the word normalizing because it, it should have been, well, it should be normal, but by, by making it more popular than the folks that, that were riding in the summer on their, on their busted up 10 speeds will now be, you know, be more inclined to give it a go in the winter, especially when the, when the infrastructure exists and they see all of their friends and neighbors doing it too. And, and, and the reality is, you know, transit, which is a great alternative for a lot of folks, but there, you know, people are not necessarily comfortable on transit right now. And, and so active transportation, especially now you and I, like for me, it's about a nine or 10 K commute downtown to, to city hall. I understand not a lot of folks are going to be doing that, but for the trips here in the neighborhood, uh, it's, it's a great option. And, and, that tongue-in-cheek saying of there's no bad weather, just bad clothing. It, you know, it, it really is a, uh, a matter of dressing for it. And if you can get the fenders on the bike and, and you know, you can winterize your bike and, and be quite comfortable getting out there. I think the biggest thing is the safety and the space yep. and, and making sure that people know that this is an option for them. There's a great book I read uh, by a journalist out of Calgary, and I think it was called Winter Bike. It was some some very simple simple title, and it was the, his journey of he was writing about it, and while he was also uh, training himself and 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 setting up his bike to do it, and he visited uh, I think Sweden and Denmark and and took some lessons away from them. It was just a, it was a good read, um, and it was all about how how simple it could be. It doesn't have to be expensive. You don't need you don't want an expensive bike in the winter, right? Like as you said, you'd rather beat up a, a city bike rather than. Mm-hmm. Uh, than your own cross bike. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm with you there. So it's not, you know, you can, you know, find that, that $150 old Canadian tire bike and, and, you know, even put some, put some screws into the tires if you need to. I think that was his first, uh, first go at it in, in creating studded tires. But even if you, you know, you don't want to ride on ice, then maybe those are the days you sit home, but on an old beater with a little bit of, a little bit of grip on the tires, you can, you can make it through most of, uh, what Toronto winter has to offer, especially if the streets are plowed and the bike and the uh, bike lanes. That's the thing. And people, people get upset, uh, when they see the bike lanes being plowed, uh, you know, some, some people and, and the roads aren't, and, you know, I, I don't often get into the, the, the nuance of, well, that's a separate plow contract. And we have, you know, six or seven different contracts in the city to do our snow plow removal. And, and the, the plows that we are using bike lanes are not taking away from capacity to plow roads because of course <laughs> they're yeah, they totally yeah, different plows. Plow. Uh, but you know, again, <laughs> it, it's best not to, uh, to kind of, you know, confuse folks with the facts on that one. But in any case, like my view is, you know, when you build the infrastructure, you have to take care of it. And so we build roads and we take care of them. We build sidewalks and in most of the city, we take care of them. Uh, <laughs> and, and the same thing is with bike lanes. You know, it's it's just when you build infrastructure, it has to be maintained, um, not just in the summer months, but all the months, 365. And uh, that's our obligation of a municipality. And, and that's what we ought to be doing. Hmm. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. I mean, staying on cycling infrastructure. But if you were like were elected, you know, God Emperor of Toronto, what would uh, what would your you know your five year plan be if you had that magic wand and could do whatever you want? I'm mixing my metaphors, but you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, with respect to active transportation. Yeah, with respect to active transportation. Well, I think that you know if you if you pull back and you look at the map, the the grid, uh, it's it's all about creating a grid, of course, and the idea that you have you know, ubiquitous active transportation infrastructure 
all day, all directions, all over the city. That is ultimately what we want to achieve um, because we want to make it safe and comfortable for, for everybody and we want to provide that option. Right. We've done a fairly good job um, building out that grid in the downtown core. Um, and, and of course, there's a lot of support for it, but we have done much less as you start to radiate out into the uh, inner suburbs and the suburbs of Toronto. This is a big mm. city. I, it really dawned on me how big Toronto is when I moved to Boston. You know, growing up, geographically, you, yeah, yeah. Growing up, you yeah. always think like Boston, you know, big U.S. city, or at least I did. And you get there, and it's actually it's very compact, and you can walk across downtown in like thirty minutes. Here, we're dealing with I don't know nearly six hundred and forty square kilometers of geography. Right. So it's a, it's probably a lot bigger than most people think, and and you often stay sort of in your neighborhood and or your end of the city, but. You know, from here to Weston, uh, in the northwest of the city, it's 30, 40 kilometer bike ride. So mm. when you look at across the city, we have a lot more work to do to make those connections safe. And again, we've we've just seen as we as was demonstrated this summer, when you build the infrastructure and when you when you make it a safe option, uh, people will elect increasingly to use active transportation. So I think the focus um needs to be in in the suburbs as we move out towards North York and Etobicoke and Scarborough and building more of that infrastructure there and it's going to be it's going to be a fight right it's it's changing the uh the hearts and minds having those difficult conversations being empathetic doing a lot of listening uh understanding and trying to address the concerns but also recognizing that you know the the city that we want to be is a city that is safe and accessible for everybody. Yeah. And that's for drivers, that's for cyclists, that's for pedestrians, that's for folks who are rolling. Um, and right now we're not set up to deliver on that promise. So, you know, it's easy to put uh, cycling infrastructure in a hydro hydro corridor. It's easy to put cycling infrastructure in our parks and ravine network. Yep. It's more challenging to build a complete street when you have a finite limited right of way that was built and conceived around automobile use and trying to put that in place. But that is that is sort of the next frontier of active transportation infrastructure. And again, like I'll ride my bike out to the Scarborough uh, Civic Center for budget committee meetings. Um, you know, that's that's 25K. I'll, I'll do it out to Etobicoke. I'll do it to North York. And, and again, I can tell you it's a pretty uncomfortable experience. Yeah. You know, absent that sort of safe cycling infrastructure, you and I might feel you know, brave enough or comfortable enough to make that trip, but most people aren't. And so then you use the argument, well, there's no cyclists, nobody's using it. Well, that's because you have arterial roads where actually we know the majority of the fatalities in Toronto take place on our arterial roads because they look and are designed like a highway. And so, you know, whether or not the, the speed limit is 60 kilometers, people will drive them like a highway. Yeah. And, and so we need to think about kind of humanizing these streets, making these streets for people um, recognizing people are always going to be driving in Toronto of like, you know, I don't begrudge that my partner has a car, um, you know, but we also need to think about all the different road users. And as we continue to, you know, from a planning perspective, grow and intensify and have more density around our transit stations, 
that's more people and and they're moving there precisely because they are on a transit line that is that is the biggest driver to why they are electing to make that real estate decision mm-hmm. why they're choosing to rent or buy there and so if you if you're going to be a transit oriented household it's a great option to you know to have a bike for those trips in the community as well yeah. Oh, that's a great point about connections and, and extending out uh, words. Cause uh, yeah, just thinking as you were talking about my own experiences and certainly, you know, uh, Danforth, Bloor Danforth and South of it is fairly, fairly straightforward to find um, safe infrastructure, but North is where it gets a little bit dicey. And there's some elements, as, especially at, you know, highway crossings, it's, it's super hard to get around. I mean, it's, you, you have to go really out of your way to stay safe. There are some, some parts of the city where, and I, I was, I'll be perfectly honest. I'm when I'm riding by myself. We were talking about Danforth bike lanes. I was more comfortable riding on the road than I was when the lanes first came in. It's gotten much better, mm-hmm. but when when people were getting used to them, um, both pedestrians and cyclists and motorists, they were a little bit a little bit interesting. Let's say. Well, um, <laughs> you're absolutely right, and we saw the same thing when we did Bloor. You know, again to talk yeah. about the speed and the scale, we did we slammed down nearly seven kilometers across Danforth this summer in a period of about four weeks. Uh, and mm-hmm. we spent like five years getting to a 2.1 kilometer pilot on Bloor. Um, so right. it just shows to give listeners the, the context of this, the scale and the speed. Um, but if we had not done Bloor, you know, that is that first sort of big effort. Like we would have never been able to do Danforth. And when these projects don't go well, uh, it sets back the whole movement of active transportation. So, you know, when they yeah. don't go well with Jarvis and you have a mayor run on a war against the car platform, populist platform, that's really, yeah. really damaging. I remember that. Yeah, that's really damaging. Yeah. And it set back active transportation. And it was almost like, you know, the third rail of politics to talk about bike lanes for nearly a decade afterwards. Uh, similarly, we had a, a, a councillor run and win on ripping out the pharmacy bike lanes. And I can tell you here in Beaches East York, the Woodbine bike lanes were a wedge issue. You know, we had a candidate I remember. had a candidate run on ripping them out. So when we don't do it well, it becomes a political liability and it makes it much harder to to do it afterwards. Uh, all the conversations for folks who were, you know, less open-minded to vary against Danforth, they would say, Well, you can't do Danforth. Look at Woodbine. Woodbine's a disaster. And I understand that, you know, that was a really challenging project and in hindsight probably could have done some different things there, but it, it is a word of caution to, you know, our, our folks in transportation services to, you know, folks in the cycling advocacy, advocacy community. It is really important to do a good job on these uh, projects, to build coalitions of support, to bring people along to really try and listen and address their concerns. Because mm-hmm. when you don't do that, the political backlash uh, that follows often jeopardizes our future wins and successes. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Because I think humans are very loss-averse kind of creatures. And when you when you take something away from somebody, they feel it much more keenly than when you give something to somebody else. So giving, you know, giving, or providing bike lanes for people is great. And, you know, people like you and me and our friends are like, this is amazing. This is great. And I'm going to be happy about it. But if you, if there's someone who feels some kind of sense of loss over parking or, or their, as to your earlier anecdote, their, their commute now takes half an hour, they feel that a lot more deeply. Deeply. And there's, I can totally imagine why the the backlash against bike lanes is 
at least sounds louder than um, than the kind of the the support and the yeah the support for having them in the in the first place. And you know what? As you were saying about when Danforth first went in, like change is hard. Change is hard for totally. human beings. Yeah. Change in your household is hard. Change at work is hard. Change in your neighborhood is hard. Whether that's a a new condo building or bike lanes coming in or you know, having to put tags on your garbage. Like all of these things uh, are different than how it was before. So it takes adaptation. And and that's not something that often makes things easier. <laughs> it's an adjustment. Yeah. So as humans, you know, we get frustrated with that. I think when you see these things go in and something the size and scale of, of Danforth uh, and for folks who are listing, you're looking at a, you know, eastbound, westbound lane with 24-7 parking and then a bike lane. Uh, for much of the summer, we used the parking for spillout cafe patio zones, which was really fantastic. But it's quite a quite a change for that right of way fig- uh, right of way configuration, and so pedestrians had to learn how to use this new space. Drivers had to learn how to use this new space, and so did cyclists. You know, you have to, which is always best practice, but you have to look both ways when you step off that curb because you're stepping into a bike lane. Um, you know, yep. and similarly, when drivers are are crossing that that cycle track uh, to make their way to the curb, they need to check uh, when you're when you're making a right hand turn as a driver. Again, always best practice. That was the scariest moment because they couldn't they couldn't often see the cyclists because of the they had the 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 layer of well the row of parked cars between them and the exactly bike. and and as you know. People, you know, some of my colleagues will say, we don't need to do pilots anymore. We already know this works. Well, yeah, like I get it. And I understand the frustration around a piloted approach. Uh, However, pilots allow us the flexibility and the capacity and frankly, the staff resources to make continual improvements and refinements based on feedback and user experience. So, you Mm -hmm. know, again, Woodbine, not a pilot, just put that in then it requires a lot more work to make changes to that, to marshal the resources, to marshal the staff time, because that project is is effectively off the books and complete. Um, and we've had to make changes to it. When it's a pilot, you know, this is just a very practical implementation lesson. But when it's a pilot, you have staff resources, you have capital dollars, you have monitoring, you have people who are still assigned to that file. So when you need to make a change, i.e. pulling back a parking space so that you have better visibility on a right-hand turn or changing signal timing to allow more east-west flow or whatever it is, we actually have the resources to do that. And we can spend the next year monitoring it and evaluating it through all four seasons and arrive at a conclusion, uh, which of course, you know, I will obviously be voting to make permanent, uh, but do it in a way where we've learned over the past 365 days and we're approving a much better, much more polished, finalized project at the end of a pilot. That's really cool. I never realized that there was the the. I mean, you hear pilot projects, but I don't. I didn't know as a, as a lay person what exactly that meant. But the way the way you explain it makes a ton of sense because you know you want the flexibility to make edits. It's it is it is a little bit you know it's a little bit of hubris to think that you can just make a big change like that and have it stick and and make everybody happy. And and every right of way in this city, again, six hundred forty square kilometers, every space is different. So we have guidelines, and this this is something that frustrates me about bureaucracy. Like you have these guidelines, um, and they are there because nine times out of ten, the guidelines work. However, there are exceptional circumstances, and that's why they are an exception, where you have to look at the context, the user experience, the situation on the ground, 
and, you know, talk to the people who understand and use the space. And sometimes that stuff doesn't present itself in a CAD drawing on a computer at city hall. Sure. So, you know, you have these guidelines for, for efficiency when you're dealing with thousands and thousands of kilometers of roads here in Toronto, but there are also specific design considerations that need to reflect the context and the user experience and, uh, and the situation on the ground. And that's important to kind of push back up against those guidelines sometimes and say, yeah, I understand that nine times out of 10, this is the way we do it. But in this right of way, in this neighborhood, in this configuration, it makes more sense to do it like this. Mm-hmm. I just want to rewind briefly. Uh, something you said about uh, how behavior has to change, how you know all cyclists and motorists and and pedestrians, um, all of us have to change a little bit. And uh, I was under the misguided assumption that when the when the bike lanes came in on the Danforth, it would be it would be you know all upside. But I had to change my behavior, like the way that I used the you know that uh, that thoroughfare ch- as a cyclist changed for me. If I'm if I'm riding there with my kids then it's like, you know, this is that, that behavior didn't change. But when I was solo, I was used to going usually faster than traffic right. because traffic on the Danforth, even before the bike lanes was usually pretty, pretty, pretty crawly. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that, you know, when I'm in those bike lanes, I just, I have to switch my brain. I'm like, nope, I'm not riding my, cu- my customary speed here. This is, it's a totally different, uh, environment. So I think that's an important message for, cyclists and uh to take away from from this as well yeah this is not like you're not doing your intervals or your repeats yep. on Danforth. <laughs> and and exactly. yeah and so like you know go to brimley or or you know do the zoo loop or whatever but um yeah it is different it's it's active transportation infrastructure and it's a little bit more straightforward now that the patios have been removed for the winter season, but you know, hopefully they'll be back next year. And, and that provides a little bit of a jog uh, in the bike lane configuration when the bike lane swings around the outside of these patios that we've added to the curb lane. So, you yeah. know, inherently there is a uh, very real physical limitation on how hard you can rail those corners. And, and I would suggest that that's not really the idea uh, yeah. of that infrastructure. No, you practice your crit riding. Yeah, and, and when it first went in, there were a bunch of people that hit the deck. There were, you know, cyclists crashing mm. into the barriers. There were cars backing into the barriers. There were, you know, pedestrians stepping out and, and not necessarily remembering to look. Um, so there is that adjustment period. The way I think about it, when somebody gives me a close pass or flips me the bird or right hooks me or turns left in front of me, you know, and there's so much rage and anger, um, you know, with with drivers and these conflicts with pedestrians and cyclists at the end, you know, it goes back to that empathy piece and it's hard to stay calm in the moment. It's not like I've never gotten heated and, you know, told somebody off. Of course I have. But you know, that is a person that's somebody's brother, sister, father, mother, child, like, and they are trying to get home to their family. They're, they're trying to get somewhere. And so I, you know, I, uh, I appeal to folks and obviously it's, it's primarily cyclists, uh, on this, this podcast listening probably, but you know, we need to recognize that that's a human being that is a human life and we are vulnerable road users. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, take it easy out there, take care of each other. You know, I am both a cyclist. I also drive. I also walk like chances are we all do all of these things. And so just remember, you know, people are heated. They've got, you don't know what they've been through that day. uh, And we all just want to get home safely. Uh, And, and I often hear a lot about, you know, 
drivers criticizing that cyclists don't follow the real rules and, you know, cyclists getting upset with drivers and, you know, it's mainly pedestrians that get struck and killed in the city. We had 42 pedestrian fatalities last year, uh, mm-hmm. all of which are preventable. Um, it's, we all need to follow the ro- rules, right? And pointing the finger at someone who isn't like actually isn't helpful. That's not the sort of culture shift that we need. Um, you know, I see driver like drivers routinely speed, drivers routinely roll stop signs, roll red lights, uh, and like also so do cyclists. Yeah. And you know, pedestrians jaywalk. Like that is frankly a product of the design of our streets that facilitate that sort of bad behavior. Um, but I don't think it's helpful or productive when we just admonish and, and yell at other road users. The reality is like everybody needs to uh, improve their their habits, everybody needs to follow the rules and the rules are there, frankly, like to keep us safe. So it is best practice and advisable to follow the rules. And that's something that we all need to be a part of when it comes to road safety. No, I totally agree. I mean, at the end of the day, you only can, you can only control your own actions. So that's, you know, that's the, that's what, that's what we got to focus on is, is, uh, as you say, following the rules and and being kind to, to our fellow road users, Mm -hmm. because, you know, to the point that you made probably a couple of times in this conversation is that it's very difficult to convince people to, uh, change their minds on things, especially if they've been doing it a certain way for a long time. And certainly, uh, you know, I, I, I'm actively trying to do this a lot less as a, as a cyclist, getting into arguments and screaming matches with motorists is not helping the, not helping the cause by any stretch. It de- that's it. That's it. It doesn't help the cause. Like, <laughs> you know, I, we, we want to build more cycling infrastructure. We know that that's challenging. We want a, a city that is with streets that are safe for all road users. Like that is our goal. We don't help ourselves advance that goal when you rip somebody's head off because they, you know, benefit of the doubt made a mistake. Yep. Worst case scenario, we're a total asshole, but like it doesn't help us uh, bring people on board or have coalitions of support to do that kind of work when we're at each other's throats. 100%. And, and, and regrettably, you know, I think politics and talk radio and different things have fueled that sort of really toxic narrative but that was like a decade ago, and I think Toronto's starting to grow up, and things are changing, and we're past that. And this moment that we're in right now is a point of reflection to consider where we are, were, and also look ahead to the future about where we want to go. And and I think everyone, you know, we can all put our swords down now and just build a, a better, safer city for everybody. So that's probably the best kind of place to put to end this conversation just because it's uh it's a very kind of uplifting hopeful note um and i think that's something that we need well we could all use a little bit more of that in uh in the year of 2020 i think fred i appreciate that michael it's uh it's been a slice chatting with you and uh looking right. forward to seeing you out on the road yeah for sure we should definitely go for a ride maybe while we still have no snow on the ground that's right. Give me an excuse to put the road wheels back on the cross bike. I've just been doing <laughs> some of the some of the tracks in the dawn. It's like sucking mightily at it, but it's something that I've I've never done and I've never mountain biked, and it's uh, it's an interesting experience too. A little off road. Very good, Brad. Thank you so much for for taking the time today. I know you've got quite a busy schedule with everything that the the city needs to get done. So uh, appreciate it. All good, Michael. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, appreciate you having me on the pod. Our pleasure. 
So listeners, thank you as always for tuning in and spending some time with us and uh, having a listen. And uh, hopefully you got uh, a little bit out of the show, even though it was uh, a bit of a departure from what we would normally talk about. I think change is good, right, Brad? It's uh, change is happening and we all have to be a part of bringing the change and keeping it positive. For sure, for sure. Uh, if you like the show, do give us a rating uh, and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and uh, consider supporting the show on Patreon. And that's at patreon.com slash endurance innovation. Thanks, everyone.